Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mind on Mental Health podcast. My name is Andy Dean. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Kristen Pexy. Dr. Pexy is an attending psychiatrist at the Princeton Center for Eating Disorders at Princeton Medical Center. And today we talk about three common misconceptions of eating disorders. So I hope you guys find it helpful and enjoy the podcast. I know that you and I had kind of talked a little bit about things we might want to cover before you came on. And one of the things that you brought up is maybe talking about some misconceptions about eating disorders. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, why is that important for you to talk about? I think it's really important to talk about for a few reasons. The first being that if we're able to understand the misconceptions, hopefully that will help people be better able to identify eating disorders in friends or family a little bit earlier so that they can, you know, seek out the treatment that they need. Another is just for families who have friends or family members going through an eating disorder to really better understand um, what may be going on with that person. And a lot of feedback that we often get from our patients is it's hard for people outside of their you know, small knit group of people who they know who have eating disorders to really understand what they're going through mm-hmm. and understand how difficult it is for them to really overcome this illness. You know, it's funny, and I've said on this podcast before that in terms of like my own clinical experience, eating disorders is not high on that list by a long shot. But I do think that one of the things that you just highlighted is that there definitely is like a community. Uh, that surrounds it, I, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like substance use in that sense, uh, like th- that population, you know, everybody knows about like 12-step meetings and that fellowship and all that. And I I get the sense, and again, I could be wrong, um, but you just brought up how it's kind of a tight-knit community. I get the sense that it's sort of like that in the eating disorders world as well. Yeah, it really is true. You know, we get a lot of the same patients who unfortunately come in multiple times and mm-hmm. they kind of get to know each other and they have to step down to multiple levels of care. So they keep in touch. They talk about each other's progress and move forward. And, you know, very similar to substance abuse, it's not always that they fully recover on their first try. Right. There is a lot of relapses along the way, um, which really you know, bends to that community and the constant communication they have with each other. All right. So we wanted to talk about different misconceptions that that are out there regarding eating disorders. So what would you say one of the biggest ones is? What's one of the biggest or the most common misconceptions that, that you see or you hear? I think one of the biggest misconceptions of eating disorders is that you have to be thin in mm. order to have an eating disorder. And I think this is one of the major barriers um, for people to recognize an eating disorder in, you know, friends, family, or even themselves to acknowledge that they really have an eating disorder if they're not fitting that stereotype that everybody expects to see. Yeah, I mean, I could totally imagine myself, again, I don't really have much experience with this. So, of course, the person who I would be looking for to diagnose with or to Like if I had to guess if someone was struggling with it, I would probably be looking for a thin person, but you're saying that that's not always the case? 
Yeah, that's not always the case. And a lot of the struggle is when people start in, you know, what would be considered to be a larger body and they start this restrictive behavior, the excessive exercise, the binging, the purging, all these dangerous behaviors. If it has to go unnoticed until they lose 50, 75, 100 pounds, it can become very dangerous. Mm-hmm. A lot of the dangers that come from these behaviors is really the rapidness of the weight loss. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you're starting in a larger body, the first instinct for the culture usually is to praise them for the weight loss to say, Mm -hmm. oh, you look great. Oh, have you lost weight? What have you been doing? Mm -hmm. Um, And it really is the exact opposite of what that person may need. Right. Of course, you don't want to encourage them to have these behaviors that could obviously have disastrous consequences. Um, but if, if someone's larger and then other people notice that they're losing weight, I, you know, I've definitely said that to people before, but you're saying that that couldn't, that may not always be the best thing. Yeah. I mean, if the person is losing rapid weight really, really fast, you might want to just check in and say, you know, are you doing this safely? Do you feel Okay. Have you been, you know, letting your doctor monitor you to Mm -hmm. make sure that it remains safe throughout the weight loss process? Because if someone is looking to do it safely, you know, that's something very easy they can do. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, we're talking a little bit about what's safe and what's not safe. And I'm just kind of asking for my own information. What is the danger that comes along with someone rapidly losing weight? Like what, what can happen in their body that makes this process so dangerous? So when you lose weight very rapidly, it often doesn't leave the body any extra calories or energy that it needs to really function. Mm -hmm. Just in general, your body needs a certain amount of calories to pump your heart, to allow your brain to function, to allow all of your organs to work to their best ability. And if all of that energy is being expended, through exercise, or if none of that energy is being taken in through food, it can really start to eat away at the function of your body and really start it to affect it in all areas. Well, you had just mentioned the three, three behaviors that could be happening while someone is going through this. And I was binging, purging, and there was one other one that you mentioned. Restricting. Restricting. So can you maybe just explain what each one of those is? Yeah. So, you know, when someone is restricting, it really means that they are taking in a very low caloric intake with the purpose of losing weight and losing weight aggressively. Mm -hmm. Binging is when someone finds themselves eating a large amount of food to the point where they become out of control of what they're doing. And then they feel quite guilty afterwards for participating in that behavior. And then sometimes that guilt can lead to purging. Um, A lot of people identify purging as the vomiting that occurs Mm -hmm. after a binge, but it can actually and often is many other things as well, which could include um, taking laxatives um, to help, you know, kind of expend the energy um, via their stool. They can take diuretics to help expend, you know, weight from their urine. And they can take diet pills, really, that, you know, are burning lots of calories. And all of these things have their own danger, Mm -hmm. depending on the amount being used. 
and I think that especially if we're talking about like diet pills or, or something like that, those dangers are probably compounded with that rapid weight loss that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And when someone's losing weight so fast and taking in medication, their body may respond differently really than it should. And it can affect not only their metabolism greatly, but it can affect their functioning physically, mentally, um, and being able to just do their daily life activities. Mm -hmm. I guess one thing that I'm struggling with here is, you know, how could family members or friends identify that this is what's happening? I mean, we kind of live in an age where rapid weight loss has become almost common um, because you have like gastric bypass surgery and things like that. So I hear you that a common misconception is that everyone who has an eating disorder is thin and that makes a lot of sense. But what are maybe some some warning signs or some some ways that concerned friends or family members might be able to tell if that's what's happening aside from the rapid weight loss? Because again, I, I almost feel like rapid weight loss is common at times now, mm-hmm. uh, or at least more common than it used to be. Uh, so anyway, what what would you say to that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's really hard to just go based on one thing to see a family member struggling. But mm-hmm. the biggest thing that would be happening likely in addition to the rapid weight loss is a major change in that person's behavior. Oftentimes, if someone is restricting to the point of rapid weight loss, um, they will become very exhausted, very tired, Mm -hmm. uh, starting to isolate to their room, uh, sleeping most of the day when they're not participating in these behaviors. They also may become more anxious, more irritable, just because they're hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something, you know, that's obviously commonly seen, whether you're purposefully restricting or not. Also, when your body goes into starvation mode, no matter what size your body is in, it's really going to start taking effect of, on your brain, um, which can cause a lot of high-level anxiety. So you might notice a family member being a lot more on edge, a lot more anxious than they typically would be. And just any real sudden change in behaviors that coincide with a rapid weight loss like that would be a major single. Okay. So typically there would, you'd probably be noticing like some, some other mental health symptoms that maybe you might associate with like anxiety or depression. So isolating yourself, wanting to sleep more, um, having high levels of anxiety, that would all kind of be accompanying this rapid weight loss. Yeah, and other things might be as simple as they're starting to avoid family dinners. Mm. You know, they're coincidentally, you know, playing a video game during that time. They're going Mm. out with friends always around dinner time. Um, Anything, you know, that would be causing them to avoid meals throughout a long period of time. Sure. Okay, one of the things I've been hearing a lot about in the news lately is there's all this... Uh, there's all this research that was done at Facebook and on Instagram, and it's really affecting um, teenagers' body image issues, and they're saying especially young girls' body image issues. And I almost feel like most people's conception of what someone who has someone who struggles with an eating disorder looks like would be like a young white girl. So. 
what would you say to that? Yeah, I would agree that a lot of, you know, the misconception does tend to lean towards a thin white female, and that's really not fully true. We really see patients of all races, both male and female, Mm -hmm. uh, from many different types of socioeconomic statuses. And that is another thing that can often contribute to really having someone go unnoticed. When a male is thinner or losing a lot of weight, people don't, that's not their first thought that pops into their mind. Mm -hmm. And because of the taboo, they're also less likely you know, to seek out the hair, the care that they may need for that as well. And same thing when it turns to race, you know, in certain communities, it might just not be the first thing that people think of um, compared to when they see a thin female, white female, it might be the one of the first things that pops into their mind. Yeah. So in your years of experience, you've really seen everyone across every spectrum, gender, race, socioeconomic status, etc. Yeah, it can be anyone. Absolutely anyone. Okay. And you're right. I think people would probably be less likely to approach a man or uh, maybe someone that's uh, someone who's non-white about an eating disorders issue because uh, there's this misconception that that's what they all look like. They're all thin white females. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that if we can, you know, spread awareness about, it might be more easily talked about and more at the forefront of people's mind. Yeah. Okay, so your first misconception would be that you have to be thin to have an eating disorder. That's not the case. What's what's another one that you you thought of? Another major misconception that we often see is that someone who has an eating disorder is choosing to have an eating mm-hmm. disorder. Mm-hmm that the real, you know, choice is eat or not eat. A lot of people think it's as simple as that. Um, And really, it's a lot more complex and really not necessarily that person's decision to eat or not eat. There's so many factors coming into play. Typically, you know, when someone is developing an eating disorder, it's not really any one thing that causes it. So it's multiple things coming together at once, like the perfect storm. So they have a lot of biological factors from their genes, family members, history, that could be really contributing to them being at risk to develop a mental illness and especially an eating disorder. And then that coupled along with any type of stress occurring in their life can really tip that biology over the edge and really start to express that eating disorder. Sure. And then, of course, you know, family dynamics, friends, school, everything also has a role Mm -hmm. um, in the eating disorder. And when you put all these things together to cause this perfect storm and this disruption in a person's life, it really becomes their only way out of all this stress Mm -hmm. is this restriction. And when it feels good that they're, you know, reducing their anxiety and their stress, it really now is not so much of a choice to them, but a necessity in order to feel better. So again, (laughs) man, I'm going to become so annoying by the end of this. But again, I'm thinking of substance use in the sense of, you know, when we treat co-occurring disorders, at a certain point, it becomes it almost becomes not a choice whether or not you're going to drink or you're going to use because that's 
that's the way you've learned how to cope, right? So if you're struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with depression, and you drink, it's probably going to help you feel better for a little while, right? It's probably going to help to reduce your anxiety for a little while. The problem is that in the long term, it's going to cause more problems than than it's going to solve. But it sounds like here, it's almost I can almost hear another similarity because again, with substance use, people would say, "Oh, well, you're drinking too much. Well, just stop drinking." Or you know, maybe with anxiety, "Oh, you're you're having anxiety. Just stop thinking about it. You know, stop thinking so much." How how do you feel like that those two kind of interplay with each other? Yeah, they interplay really well. And another you know similarity is. The more you don't eat or the more you use the drug, the more and more, you know, we could say addictive you become Mm, to that behavior mm -hmm. or that substance. And when you are using restricting as that behavior, as the brain becomes more and more malnourished, it physically becomes harder for the patient to overcome their fears of Mm. eating. Mm. Um, There's a lot of things that are occurring in the brain, their dopamine is being lowered. Um, it's really been shown that people who have anorexia and have been starving themselves for a while, they don't get the same reward from eating mm-hmm. that the rest of the population gets. And if you get no reward from something that causes you anxiety, why would you do it? Right. Wow. <laughs> that that was super interesting because I've never actually thought about that before. That makes a lot of sense. You know, if your brain is being malnourished, that's also going to cause its own set of problems. Yeah, and it comes from multiple angles, too, because not only are they losing the reward that typically would come from eating something satisfying, but they also can lose what we call interoception, which is their body's ability to sense hunger cues, satiety Mm -hmm. cues, and the typical cues that you would feel throughout the day from eating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if your body turns off your ability to feel hunger and eating is not rewarding, you know, what really is and could be the motivator to eat? Yeah, right. Can you say that word again? Interoception? Interoception. How do you you spell that? I have no idea. Uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Well, interoception. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure any listeners could Google that, or at least do their best on Google and come up with that. But that's that's really interesting because it, again, it's almost like your brain is shutting down any natural any natural desire or natural cue you would have to seek out food. Yeah, and how I often explain it to patients sometimes, and what I believe is that it's also a way of the body to protect itself. The body doesn't really understand why it's starving. It doesn't understand that it's because you want it to starve. It could be because you don't have access to food. It could be because, you know, you have a medical illness that is causing your appetite to be low or you can't swallow. So it's trying to protect you from other harmful feelings Mm -hmm. like hunger, which we all know can be very hard to tolerate. Uh, when you don't have food in front of you, it's a way to protect you from feeling any worse than you already do. Right. That makes sense. And again, I, I think this is one of the sort of fascinating things about treating eating disorders is it's like that mind-body connection or maybe lack of connection because you want your body to do one thing and then it's going to respond in its own way, even if it's not necessarily what you want. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the my favorite articles I've ever read, you know, was a research study done called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually in World War II when the American troops started liberating the concentration camps. And they started finding all these people who were starved. And really, when they started refeeding them, they became more sick. So they wanted to explore what they could do to refeed these patients safely and appropriately. And that involved taking a select group of people from the U.S. and starving who would starve themselves on purpose. Mm-hmm. And they really studied how their brain reacted, how their behavior changed. Um, and it really is similar to the heightened anxiety, wow. you know, the decreased cues of hunger, the mm-hmm. decreased sleep that we often see with our patients. So let me just ask you a quick follow-up question about this. So you're saying that eating disorders aren't a choice, and we want to make sure that people know that that's a common misconception. I guess when I'm sitting here thinking about it, I'm curious if you run into maybe a lot of frustrated, understandably so, and desperate, caring family members or friends that maybe feel don't know what else to do. So they feel like maybe the, it is a choice and the person should just stop. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering if that's why you're choosing to bring it up. Is, is that the case or is that not the case? Yeah, that's, you know, often the case, not mm-hmm. all the time, but a lot of times, you know, parents have been seeing their child struggle for so long of course, and they think just eat, you know, mm-hmm. just eat, mm-hmm. that will solve all the problems. Um, And they try to often do it on their own, which is often, you know, more anxiety provoking. And if you're not able to address all these other things going on, in addition to the eating disorder and, you know, the medical part behind it, it's going to be really hard for the person to overcome. So just to be aware, you know, you can always seek out help um, outside of just the family because it's not going to be so easy Mm -hmm. just to help the person eat all of a sudden. Yeah. And it. You know, I just want to say, I can't even imagine what the stress of that must be on on a parent. But again, I mean, I think it's something that just seems so simple to fix, right? Like you're saying, like, just eat, just eat. Like, what's so hard about it? But it also sounds like what you're saying is once people get to a certain point, it's really not, it's not that simple at all. Exactly. And again, kind of like substance use and when people really are just saying, like, just don't use, just stop. Um, but I told you I would try to stop comparing the two. <laughs> it really is very similar. Thank awesome. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, so you've given us two common misconceptions um, of eating disorders. One was that you have to be thin in order to have an eating disorder. The second one is that eating disorders and eating disorder behaviors are a choice. What else? What What's another misconception that you've come across? One of the other misconceptions that we often see you know, is parents or family members really asking if this not eating is a suicide attempt by the patient? Is mm-hmm. this way that they're really trying to end their life or kill themselves? And, you know, it's not always the case. Um, it's not even commonly the case, especially at the beginning of an eating disorder. Um, most of our patients actually believe they're not sick enough to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the main reasons it's so difficult to treat them at times too is because they're alive and they haven't been eating Mm -hmm. so why would me telling them that they're going to die if they continue not eating make sense to them and I think a lot of times a lot of that fear and appropriate fear from family is that they will die 
if they don't eat. And even though you can express that to a family member over and over again, it's not going to be the reason why they get better. Mm -hmm. You know, that's such an interesting point because it's almost like what you're saying is that, of course, the family member might be viewing it as a suicide attempt, but the, the individual or the patient is at a point where they've been sort of doing this or, or living with this for, I don't know, a certain amount of time. And they've noticed that, you know, they're fine or they're alive or there haven't been too many negative consequences yet. So it's like, why would I go back or why would I do something differently if there haven't been any negative consequences? And I'm not saying that there's never any early negative consequences to this, but I think my sense is that um, for a lot of these patients that you were talking about, it's hard to convince them to kind of change their behaviors if they're if they haven't crossed a, a certain threshold yet. Or like again, in the substance use field, we would say like hit rock bottom or um, really noticed like a serious consequence. So even though the the family is thinking, oh, you know, it's a suicide attempt the patient really may not be thinking that way at all or, or may not have almost any sense that that what they're doing is harmful to themselves. Yeah, and as they begin, you know, the restricting process and it becomes longer and longer, they develop what we call in the field their eating disorder voice. Mm. That's not very logical compared mm-hmm. to their normal voice. So you cannot logically explain to someone's eating disorder voice that they're going to die if Mm. they continue to restrict. They're not, Mm. it's not going to work. Um, And a lot of times eating disorders are so highly focused on numbers. They're always focusing or most of the time focusing on calories, on their weight. How Mm. much did they lose from yesterday? How much did they lose in a month? Um, and when they go into a emergency room, to a pediatrician, to their primary care doctor, they're only going to focus on the labs and their vitals. If those are fine, they're fine. Mm-hmm. And there's no way around that. It's really you know, difficult to approach it that way. And if they continue you know, restricting more, it's just a matter of really their genetics, how long it can go before those vitals, those labs become abnormal. Right. And they start to really feel the medical effects of the disorder. So I guess I'm curious here. I think early on in the course of the illness, I mean, you're saying it's definitely not a suicide attempt for many people, but can it ever get to that point? Yeah. I mean, suicide, you know, throughout the process is often something that comes up in a Mm -hmm. lot of our patients. Um, but a lot of it is not solely from the eating disorder. A lot mm-hmm. of it comes from a lot of the comorbid disorders that occur with the patient, like mm-hmm. depression. Um, sometimes their mood could be so low, so low motivation, feeling hopeless about both their depression and their eating disorder, sure. that suicide now becomes a way out mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because it can be so difficult to overcome you know, the eating disorder, especially if you have depression and high anxiety and other things layered on top. Mm -hmm. And often, you know, these patients who relapse over and over again and aren't able to fully overcome the eating disorder, they feel so hopeless, so exhausted. And that may be a time where they would turn to suicide. Mm -hmm. 
But I think what it sounds like you're saying is patients don't develop an eating disorder as a suicide attempt, but it can become so overwhelming, um, it can seem so hopeless at times that maybe their minds might turn to suicide as just an escape or a way out of sort of this reality once they've heard, hit a certain point in the, in the course of the illness. Yeah, that sounds right, Andy.